All right. Welcome to episode 28 of Uncorrect New York. I'm Tom Rosati. I'm Stephen Witt. And we have a special guest today, none other than the Brooklyn Borough President, Eric Adams. Thank you. Wow, amazing. 28. Uh, yes, we've been doing this every week. I'm loving it. So let's, a uh, couple of things. Let's, I just, you know, one thing that, that we like to do is humanize the elected officials when they come in here. <laughs> so, you know, I'm wondering, tell me a little bit about, like, when you were a little boy, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, wow. So many questions. I came from, I was actually born in Brooklyn, moved to Queens. What what hospital were you born in? <laughs> Methodist Hospital. And I'm so glad oh, wow. that I asked my mother that question two weeks ago so oh. I could answer it correctly <laughs> today. Okay. Because it would, have, it would have been really bad for me to say, I don't know. Right. What, but what no, ward of Methodist Hospital? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we stayed in Brooklyn on 1218 Gates Avenue. And some years later, which is an amazing story, I think that if ever one would like to know who I am is to know my mother. She's an amazing woman. She raised six children. Uh, four, four, four boys and two girls. And when she made the decision during the 60s, we're talking around 65, 66, a different city at that time. And when mom decided she wanted to move her children out of Brooklyn, we used to, we used to live on Gates Avenue down a block from Broadway. I used to believe that that was the same Broadway where Sammy Davis Jr. performed. <laughs> Little did I know. That was Brownsville Broadway. But so mom used to iron clothes and clean folks' homes, and so finally she saved up enough money to buy a house um, in Queens. And when she told the neighbors that she was going to eventually move to Queens one day, they all laughed at her. They was Because Queens, saying you were moving to Queens from Brownsville, you might as well say you were moving to Mars. And she says, you know, don't worry, son, we're going to move to Queens. And eventually she did. And th when she went to her closing, the attorney that she would clean his house was the bank's attorney. And he said, what are you doing here, Dorothy? She said, this is my house that I'm purchasing. Wow. wow. She, after she did the closing, she went to his house, cleaned up. After she finished cleaning up, he fired her. He said, you know, who do you think you are buying a house? And that's that's no. no. Like he was upset. He was upset. And she, she says, you know, she went in the subway station and just yelled and screamed and cried, dried her eyes. She said, I have six children. I have to keep this house. I have to find a way. And I never knew the story until five years ago when I moved her out of her house and rebuilt it for her. We were sitting down talking. And there was this, this note in her Bible where she documented the whole incident and said, you know, ho hopefully one day she could have her house redone. Because it was just a shack back then. What neighborhood was it? St. Albans. Between St. Albans and, and, and South Jamaica, it was, it's the purgatory of Queens. You know, you don't really have, know your address. You know? <laughs> and how old were you? At the time? Mm -hmm. uh, I, was, I moved to Queens when I was seven years old. And she held on to the house. You know, there was many days when we would come from school crossing our fingers that the marshal wasn't there to throw us out. We fell behind in the rent many times. Uh, thank God for illegal numbers back then because mom used to get a hit every once in a while. <laughs> and, you know, she would win a bolita or, you know, we were able to just eke it out. And it was, it was I, as I was just telling this young man, he was saying, how am I doing one day at a time? Because that's what it was about. 
It was just one day at a time. One of the most famous stories that I think about is we used to go to this church. We used to call it a Cheers Church. Everyone knows your name, and everyone was glad you came. We used to go at night in the day. Small storefront church, not like the mega churches. And we used to never have anything to eat during that break period. And one day late, after we finished the night service, a car caravan of women pulled up at our house. And they unloaded all of these boxes of groceries, you know, because they knew that the Adams family, six of us, you know, mom was seven. And that night I went downstairs. I was so happy. I said, you know, we'll just have some cornflake, none of that powder milk, real milk. (laughs) And all the boxes were open. Half a box of spaghetti, half a jar of mayonnaise, you know. The women could not buy us groceries. They gave us half of what they had in their own cupboards. And they they said, you know what, we're going to do for this family. And every every day, there was another person, another group, another organization. It was it was day by day, week by week, year by year, until we were all old enough to provide for ourselves. But it was the accumulation of people. That's why I get so passionate when we talk about the uh, the homeless battle, because. That wasn't a conversation of where we grow up. And I say to some of the people, particularly in the Southern and Caribbean community, we know better. You know, we don't look down on people because they're homeless. We reach down and pick them up. You know, you can't go to church on Sunday and say how merciful God is. And on Monday, you lead the protest saying we don't want those people on our block. Those are our former neighbors, you know. Right. <laughs> you know, so... The life was a life of, you know, of just watching the benevolence of people. People have always helped our family, and that is why I got into law enforcement, and that is why I got into politics. So, yeah, how would you get into law enforcement? I remember hearing the story once. That yeah, I, I, we, my brother and I, we were arrested as children. We, I was 15. My brother was 16 years old. And while the police officers were filling out the papers— we didn't chase them. There wasn't a fight. Uh, and they just said, do you feel like doing a beatdown? We didn't know what the heck it was. And actually, we were, we were all joking and laughing with each other. That's how sadistic it was. And they took us downstairs to the basement of the 103rd Precinct, and they just they just beat us, kicked us in our grind over and over and over again. And it, I was so angry. There was a black cop that walked in and said, that's enough. He didn't... Do anything else, he just said, that's enough. So it must have been a culture of violence in that precinct. What precinct was that? 103rd, same precinct where Sean Bell was shot and killed. And what, what did you get busted for at 15, you said? Burglary, burglary. We used to, we had a good friend. Her name was Mickey. She was a go-go dancer. You know, <laughs> right. that's my 15-year-old life. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, all right. We all been there. <laughs> And we t- she you should broke tell her- to Martin Scorsese mm-hmm. and make a movie about it. <laughs> she broke her leg, and so she you can't dance when you have a broken leg. And right. so we <laughs> we helped her, you know, from our little money. Then after she started getting back on her dancing feet, she ignored us, and we went to her house to get our money back, and we got arrested for it. And uh, I was I went to Spotford which is not open any longer in the Bronx. And my brother went to a uh, criminal court and we eventually, we were able to just resolve it. And I, we had to go to a counselor and I'll never forget going to the counselor 
And the counselor told my brother, I want you to come back next week. And the counselor told me, she said, don't even bother coming back. Really? She just felt I was just so, I had so much anger back then. And in her mind, you're going to be back locked up somewhere. So don't even bother coming back. So how did you, how did you, um, you know, go from there to the police? Oh, real quick, also, what's mm-hmm. your brother doing today? Uh, my brother is he's down in Carolina. He's a he's a, a farmer. Uh, he was there was a story several years ago, probably 15 years ago, where a crane fell on someone. That was my brother. A crane fell on him uh, in Manhattan. He was a construction employee, and out of that came a lawsuit. And so he was able to do his dream of really returning to the South. And he's a farmer there uh, in the South. Your family's from the Carolinas. Or? Families from, we call the Carolinas the North. We're from Alabama. <laughs> oh, Alabama. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We're from Alabama. My my grandmother and uh, d- granddad, they, they had uh, about 100 acres. We have a lot of property there. My grandmother was an extremely benevolent woman. She provided for a lot of people in the area. A lot of the land was stolen for, from a lot of the uh, African Americans, and that's why I'm so passionate about the TPT conversation, which I'm sure we would get into, but it, you know, all of these emotions come up when you start seeing some of the things that happened. So when I was in the police department, when I when I became a police officer, people used to say, you know, why are you so passionate about this issue? They didn't know that the demon of what happened in the 103rd precinct. The only way I was able to tame that demon was to fight against police abuse and police misconduct because you know there's a you feel as though you're demasculated when someone beats you in that fashion and every time I saw a police cop during those times I would relive it that was a level of PTSD oh absolutely you know, I guess that's a segue, and I hate to break it, but today, did, did he get fired? Uh, what, I, no, what happens after... And what's his name again? Panatelio. Oh, Panatelio, yeah. What happens is that after uh, the trial room judge comes down with a decision, then the attorney for the defendant, which is uh, the officer, they have a two-week period to do a review. Then the police commissioner will make a decision on if he's going to be fired or not, and that is taking place now on how we're going to respond, how's he going to respond. And you think he should be fired? Yes, yes. Uh, anytime, I said this in 2014 when the case first happened. It is, a, it is an indictment on every police officer that's poss- that patrols our street. If we cannot sa- safely subdue a person who committed... <sighs> a minor infraction, that's an indictment on us. And a person who loses his or her life for a minor infraction, when we have all of these tools, and I say this over and over again, police officers leave their precincts with a toolbox full of tools to correct conditions. You can't use the hammer all the time when you're in communities of color, and that's what we do far too often. Go into the toolbox, use the power of conversation. Eric Gardner was passively resistant. That was about a conversation. That was about getting more manpower there. That was That's about using your head. But when you feel, I shouldn't have to talk to you, I don't want to talk to you, that is when you go from zero to 100 and you jeopardize not only the life of the person 
people you're tempted to apprehend, but also your partners, you know, and that hap- happens far too often. And I think, didn't he have, he had some other stuff on his his record, the the cop, and some other questionable arrests, I think. I'm right, sure. right. Some other interactions uh, that were reported, and it just shows that not everyone could be a police officer. Keep in mind, police officers can take life and liberty. The two most important things to our country is the right to, to live and your liberty. And they then can the take away pursuit your freedom of happiness. In pursuit of happiness. Yeah, yeah. They can take away your freedom. And so whenever people state we should not be second-guessing our police officers, we should not be having them under high-level scrutiny, yes, we should. The president of the United States cannot take your life. And we give that to men and women. The standards need to be extremely high. If you have the ability to take my life, then you must be under a high level of scrutiny. And so when people state that it's unfair, no, it's not unfair. It is fair. And that is what we're seeing right now. When, when you were a cop, what, what were you in? Were you in uh, community policing? Or? No, I, when I, I started out in the transit police department. And from the Transit Police Department, uh, the merger took place under Commissioner Bratton. Then I went to uh, the New York City Police Department. I got promoted to a lieutenant. I went to the 88th Precinct, which oh, is right, right here in Fort this area. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Right uh-huh. I used to do blotter there. Huh? This is part of the 88 right here, too. All right. You know? And then um, after getting promoted to a captain, I went to the 6th Precinct. Where's the 6th, Manhattan? In the city. Lower Manhattan. You know yeah. what's fascinating? When I was... I used to always spend a lot of time in that area. I loved that area. As a kid, coming from uh, high school or college, I used to just walk around the shop. I said, one day I would love to be a police officer here. And that's where I ended my career. Where in the village? <laughs> in it? the village. You know, Christopher Street, the precinct was right down the block from Christopher Street on 10th Street. Did you ever have to draw your gun as a cop? Yeah, draw it, not discharge it. But, you know, when you're a transit police officer, you patrolled alone back then. During the uh, early 80s into the mid 90s. Some rough years. Yeah. Difficult years, a different different city. A different city. You probably saw me as a street musician. I was <laughs> I was a subway musician then in the eighties. I probably threw you off the train. <laughs> yeah. <a> yeah. <laughs> Did you know Jack Maple? <laughs> Love Jack. Yeah. Jack was a friend. You knew Jack? No, I just know that he started. Uh, didn't he start CompStat? Yeah. Yes. Right. Let me tell you my Jack Maple story. Okay. Mm-hmm. And really, you know, it's no secret that I would like to be mayor one day. Yeah, well, let's go to that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's hear Jack. Huh? And it's bo- it's connected to my Jack Maple story. When I came into the police department, I was a police officer special assignment. I was a computer programmer. I used to program using assembly language and a COBOL language programming. We used to use, do mainframe co- uh, uh, programming. And Jack came to me one day. He was in the transit police. We both were in the transit police. He came to me and said, Eric, I figured it out. We could, we could, we could beat crime. Prior <laughs> to that, it was unheard of that crime, had any, police had anything to do with bringing down crime. They, everyone said social ills. There's nothing you could do about it. So we were just going through the motion. We had 2,000 homicides a year in the city. You know, 98,000 robberies. Think about wow. that. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, almost almost uh, an equal amount of felonious assaults. We had kidnaps, rap, drugs. It was just total disorder. And we we adjusted 
to living in a crime city. We created, we built industries around living in crime. We, you know, people don't remember the Benzie boxes where you used to put your radio oh, yeah. so you could carry <laughs> right. it out of your car. Yeah. That's a, that is a sim- symbol of surrender. You say, there's nothing I could do about you stealing my car, so I'm going to buy a device that's going to take it out. You know, and that was where I started my policing career, unfortunately. But fortunately, in the mid-90s, I met Jack Maple. And Jack, I was part of the team that wrote the first online transit police uh, system. This was this was a state of an art, a different thought. It was real-time policing where you were not only— we went from uh, from reacting to crime to being <clears throat> proactive to being predictive. So you actually helped develop Comstats. Exactly, exactly. That's a really right, interesting right, thing. Right. And with that came a very clear analytical mind. And this is a, this is very important part of what this journey is all about. So Jack then proved, the first year he introduced Comstat, Jack was able to decrease crime in the transit police system by 30, I think 36, 37%. Bratton comes back to the city. Jack then scales up his model to the New York City Police Department. Year one, we we, we go down, the city goes down 400 homicides. Now think about it, 25 years later, we've never had another increase in crime because the system was built. It didn't matter who the police commissioner was. It didn't matter who the mayor was. It didn't matter who the police chief was. The system was built, and once the system was built, it operated correctly. Jack cracked the code on crime, but he cracked the code on something else. Bill Bratton knew that we can take this and do it with all of our agencies. Uh, Cities fail, not because of this totality, you know, this total outlook. It fails because agencies are failing to do their primary job. People don't really recognize that. We saw that in the police department. We saw that not only were we failing our mission of keeping people safe. Think about this for a moment. What's happening in our city and cities across America is that agencies are failing their primary job, but they're also creating crises for other agencies. So we saw in the police department that not only were we failing to protect the people of the city, but we were also making an economic crisis. No one was buying here. No one, Our property values were low. Tourists weren't coming here. In 1991, when we were having 2,000 homicides, we only had uh, uh, 40, 29 million tourists with only $10 billion in economic revenue. 2018, we had 65 million tourists with $44 billion in economic revenue. So public streets is not only safe for you and I, but it's an economic stimulus package at the same time. So we knew that if you turn around the agencies, you could turn around the city. And that is that was a pivotal, pivotal period for New York. Because if, if every agency in the city would have followed the New York City Police Department in a cultural change and go to real-time governance, we would have a different city right now. Ask yourself a question. Give me one agency, one, in this city that is functioning correctly. NYPD. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and by the way, the, Comstat, well, the irony is that they did that all around the country. Instead of going to different agencies, they went around to different police departments all around the, 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 the Let me tell you, and this is why this is so important. This is why I'm glad you said that. 
Because since we the, we are the largest of everything, largest school system, largest department of building, largest uh, NYCHA uh, units, largest, 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 when we get it right, people come from all over the country. And trust me, as I've been on this pursuit, I've been traveling all over the countries, and it's the same thing. Agencies fail their primary mission. Then they create crisis for other agencies. You know the best example of that? Department of Education. I was mm -hmm. thinking that. Think about this for a moment, what people don't realize. Everyone is focusing on the Department of Education failure of the educating children. No. They're also creating crisis. They're failing their primary. Remember what my, what my hypothesis is. Fail your primary mission and then create crisis for others. Mm -hmm. So the Department of Education is creating two crises in this city. It's creating the healthcare crisis and it's creating the Rikers crisis. 80% of the men and women on Rikers Island don't have a high school diploma or equivalency diploma. One third of the 18 to 21 year olds on Rikers Island read below a fifth grade reading level. Check out this number 30% of the children are dyslexic. Hmm. 50% of them, over 50%, have a learning disability. So if we didn't. If we would have solved the problem upstream in the school, we wouldn't have a discussion about closing the building of Rikers Island. I'm, I'm, I am saying let's stop talking about just closing the building. Let's close the pipeline that feeds Rikers Island. Now look at the health care crisis. 75% of 12-year-olds in the city have early signs of heart disease. What? 75%. Really? Yes. 75%. Why? Because the Department of Health talks about fighting childhood obesity, childhood diabetes, childhood asthma, yet Department of Education feed our children over 960,000 meals a day that causes what? Childhood obesity, childhood diabetes, childhood asthma. Right. Right. <laughs> so that, I mean, I've saw, I saw that you have initiatives to um, have uh, the ban the baloney uh, initiative and meatless Mondays, right, for schools. Yes, so yes. you're trying to get the Department of Edu Education, which is essentially a food service provider for hundreds of thousands of thousands kids every of children. day. Thousands yeah. of children. And so, so what we're doing is we're changing the culture of disease, chronic diseases. What created chronic disease? You don't get diabetes because you got older. And you don't get it because it's in your DNA. It's directly tied to food. I just left Washington, D.C. last week where I spoke to a 1,000 healthcare professionals about our Bellevue project, where we are doing the first of its kind in America of disease reversal. Mm. And it's the first of its kind in America. But at the heart of our babies getting these diseases and growing the habits that move them to get diseases is in the food. And many of our children, their primary source of meals come from the Department of Education. So mm -hmm. if you're getting no nutritional meals at home, no nutritional meals in your school, you are going to have a chronic disease. It's not going to happen. You give little Johnny a hamburger on Monday, he's not going to get colon cancer on Tuesday. But if he builds in the culture that this is his primary source of meals, he will be diabetic. Exactly. Well, he'll learn that that's what you eat. Exactly, exactly. And so, so what, do I, what am I saying? So Bill Bratton decides we figured it out. We could correct the city. He wanted to run for mayor. 
He decided not to because he didn't want to get into the fundraising aspect of it. Right. Ray Kelly was going to run for mayor. Same thing. He didn't want to get into the fundraising aspect of it. So 21 years, uh, 22 years ago, I went to uh, Bill Lynch, the former deputy mayor, and I said, Bill, I would like to be mayor of the city one day. We can change this city. And Bill told me, Eric, this is what you have to do. He said, you have an associate's degree. You have to go back to school and get your bachelor's at least. I went back and got my master's. He said, you are a, a sergeant. You have to become at least a lieutenant. I became a captain. He says, you have to become a state legislator so you can learn how to write laws. I went to state senate. He said, then become a congressman or a borough president. I became the borough president, first African-American borough president. People think that I all of a sudden say I want to run for mayor. No, this has been 22 years in the making. Right. It seems like the seed, I mean, the, the seed to be a cop was planted very early and, and that made itself happen. And now That's how life you're is. describing the seed that was planted for being mayor after this whole transformation and you realizing, OK, this could happen for every single agency. Every agency. And once we wrap our mind around, we really don't believe our cities can function. This is the same way. This is deja vu for me right. because people didn't believe our city could be safe. When we first started talking about this, when Bill Bratton and Jack was talking about this, people were like saying, these guys must be smoking that crack they're selling on the street. (laughs) What's Jack doing? Is he still around? No, Jack transitioned. He passed away. He passed away. No one believed it. People don't believe our city can function. We we start the school year saying, these kids are not going to learn. We wake up in NYCHA and say, these buildings are never going to be fixed. We 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 have something called uh, uh, expeditors in the Department of Buildings. Think about that. You have to hire someone <laughs> yeah. outside the agency to, to do get your documents yeah. to get forward. the permits going. Yeah. So we're building industries around the dysfunctionality of the city. Our city is dysfunctional, and the reason we're not able to turn it over because the people who are in government. Ask me one person that's in government that has been a part of any institution where there was a complete reversal, a cultural change. Give me one person. Tell me one person who's elected to office that can say, I was a part of this institution and we completely reversed the conditions of that institution. There's only one person in city government that can say that. And that's you. Eric Adams. That's right. (laughs) But you were actually there at the beginning of ComStat and helped work on that. Right. So it's a combination. It's, really it's a combination, it's really as you cool. pointed out. It's a combination of the personal experience of being abused and picking myself off the floor of the 103rd precinct to become a captain in that same precinct. It's a combination of the analytical skills of being able to look at a problem, define the problem, and come together to solve that problem. It's a combination of my legislative experience, my borough president experience, diverse borough like Brooklyn, uh, what it is. It's a com- that's the complete combination that made me who I am to get to where I am now to turn this city around. I believe I'm, I could be the mayor of the New York for only one reason only. I'm so darn better than anybody else that's running. <laughs> <laughs> you, you got my vote. <laughs> but you're also not like, I mean, there's it, it's a kind of a one-party city, right. and there is kind of this progressive wave, and you don't strike me as being a progressive's progressive. <laughs> I, don't, but, I don't know what that is anymore. You know, right. I don't know what it is anymore. I do know this. As I move around the city, I'm seeing indicators. 
that is saying we're going back. I don't want Jordan, my son, to grow up in the city that I grew up in. Right. And when you see the high level of homeless people sleeping on our streets, and we don't really have a homeless problem, we have a mental health problem because many of them have mental health issues. When you see that I I take the train all the time, when you watch people just walk through the gate saying, you know what, I I just don't want to pay the fare. Not those who can afford to pay the fare, but those who are employed and just feel as though, you know what, I just don't want to participate. You can't run a city of this size with lawlessness and disorder. You can't. And many people in this city thought Williamsburg was always that way. They thought (laughs) Greenpoint was always that way. They thought that you can always go down to Dumbo. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. No. And so you people could romanticize. And it could go back. Oh, I'm seeing indicators of that, that it's returning. And so when people say, what is your politics? My politics is saving people, protecting people. Public safety is the prerequisite to prosperity. You wrote an op-ed yesterday in the Daily News about the need for the police department to work with community organizations. And you compared it to the 80s when they were arresting guardian angels and you know saw anyone who tried to help in the crime fighting arena as vigilantes you're, you 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 disparage that and say that the only way that we can actually really uh bring neighborhoods up is to work with different groups can you expound on that a little now, bit that's a great question uh, what happens is and that's the history of policing across the country police are very arrogant they don't like community patrols they don't like uh, folks coming in and saying we want to do our own block watch. In their minds, they take it as, oh, what you're saying, we're not doing a good enough job. When Curtis Lee was doing his Guardian Angels during those days when we were in graffiti-written high crime, they were walking through the cars. They were unarmed. Listen, I was happy to see Guardian I was too. Right. I, was, I was there back then. But ask Curtis Lee to tell you how many times they tried to arrest their crew, eject them. They were told, we don't want them here. What are they doing here? You know, because they felt as though it was a personal affront to them. Same thing, we, we, we helped a group of uh, religious leaders on Bedford Avenue and part of uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant, uh, you know, to, you know, do block watches and crime. Police started arresting the... Block watchers? Block watchers. <sighs> You know, so and even the, the the Muslim security patrol that was just announced uh, recently because there was a series of incidents where women who were wearing hijabs were being uh, attacked, their children were being uh, uh, you know attacked and and harassed, and so the Muslims came together and they said, listen, we want to buy our own vehicle, do what other communities are doing, we want to start our own own security patrol. Right. I mean, the, the precinct said, if we see you driving around, we're going to give you a summons. You know, so. We talk about. Well, you also have also Black Panthers and the Nation of Islam, exactly. who also created they neighborhood also created defense the, forces, and you know what happened to them. Exactly. I mean, right. Well yeah. said. Well said. And so, what I said to the mayor when we had the meeting after the shooting in Brownsville, I said, Mayor, we have to stop talking about communities and police. See, the methods that we used to bring down crime to the record numbers, which is extremely impressive. Now you have to shift to how you get into crevices. How do you go into the areas that the police can't go? You know, we had 100 cops at the Brownsville Old Timers Day, and there still was a shooting. But that area is 
considered as a hotspot. Hotspots are places where you will have either shooting or known gang activities. And the Cure Violence, these are uh, groups who are trained to give wraparound services, get people out of gangs, respond to shooters after there is a retaliatory uh, action, going into the hospital, speaking to families, talking people down off the ledge, turning down the temperature. The, this, body of, these, this body of people are trained, and many of them, they come from the community, some of them ex-gangbangers, some of them have done time in jail, they turn their lives around, so they know how to get on the ground. Instead of the police department embracing them, they, they talk about embracing them. But in reality, some priests may have 20 hotspots. They will cover one hotspot so they can say, we are doing things jointly mm. with cure violence, but in fact, you're not. And, you know, like the 73rd Precinct, with all the hotspots in the 73rd Precinct where the Brownsville shooting took place, there's only one hotspot that's covered by the cure, cure, cure violence. I am saying to the mayor, listen, this is a part of the law enforcement apparatus that we need to develop fully. Some of these guys can't even meet payroll. Right. You know, if we do that, you will see the elusive task of dealing with gang violence disappear. We have a gang crisis in this city, in certain communities. Yeah, gangs are beginning to sprout up again. Oh, and not just in the city, too. I mean, yes, yes, yes. I mean, we have a real gang problem. I, this is kind of a holistic question because you talked about the holistic issues, you know, issues between different agencies. How, like, what is your idea of why people join gangs and how do we diffuse that? Like, how do we start that? And if you talk about the upriver idea, like, what, what are the issues that go into someone? Joining a gang. Excellent. That's an excellent, ex excellent question. I, I'm dyslexic. I'm sitting in classroom thinking I'm dumb because I can't read. I, I, I can't understand the letters that are in front of me. You know what? I'm tired of being laughed at. I'm tired of being embarrassed. I'm, I'm going to start hanging on the corner. Hey, hey, blood leader, you're not laughing at me. You're not calling me names. You, you're going to give me a job of, you know, all I got to do is hold on to this drug or hold on to this gun. I, can, I feel like I'm part of something now. You know, that's where they come from. The fee, if we were to, I trust me, if we were to do an analysis of the gang members, I bet you you'll find the same um, sampling of the population we have in the prisons mm -hmm. is the same makeup of the gang members. I bet you many of them are dyslexic. I bet you many of them have a learning disability. I bet you many, many of them have been abused already. And so if we're not giving people the services when they're broken, right. then they're going to turn out to be broken adults and very violent. And that's why they join gangs. They don't join gangs because they come out of their mother's womb saying, listen, I want to be a crip. You know, what conditions will cause them to now say, I want to abandon the stream of an education, of being part of a, a lifestyle to go to this lifestyle that's extremely dangerous. Yeah, I, and I, I see it also kind of as a mental health issue too because, you know, I, I've worked with underprivileged kids and, you know, we just had a basketball program where a kid ended up getting arrested and he was the same kid who would come in there hot-tempered all the time, you know, for whatever reason, like he, I don't know, like what his, he had issues. And of course, that's the, every, and everyone had this, everyone had to calm him down every time. That's the Stop. kid all of a sudden he didn't sh show up, you know, he's the guy who got who gets caught with a gun doing something stupid. And so we think of mental health as, 
okay, well, if you're doing something dangerous to yourself internally, like if you're cutting yourself or if you're doing something that would have suicidal tendencies, then, oh, you need to get help. But if that's extroverted somehow, then then you're not you don't have mental health issues. You have you know, some sort of criminal behavior. Right. But it's the same thing because you're, you're putting yourself into situations like the article you mentioned about the kid uh, in the Times mm. who because you, you were talking about the Cure Violence program right. in your op-ed. The kid who's like a, he went in and out of a gang. But he's putting himself into very dangerous situations. Without a doubt. Well said. Well said. And that's why, that's why we want to do something that is historical in nature but ignored by uh, European societies, and that's meditation. The, huh. the, the, the data and research is there. It's, yeah. it's remarkable, the power of meditation. is. It is our goal to have uh, our young people start their school day with meditation. Let them meditate in the beginning of the day, meditate at the end of the day. Uh, we, have, we have been uh, organizing ourselves with David Lynch Foundation, Bob Roth. They've done a series of research in Chicago. The numbers are just remarkable. In, in the Chicago uh, school district, uh, they allowed them to take a school where they divided the children up, half did meditation, half didn't. <clears throat> and the numbers of lack of recidivism, lack of violence, the power of meditation, because when I, when I retired from the police department, the emotions of seeing how man, the cruelty man showed to man mm -hmm. really you know, it, it, it screws with your head, man. Yeah. I was, you know, I didn't realize I was suffering from PTSD. I, every time I thought about Robert Venable, a good friend of mine, a cop that was shot and killed, James Davis, a good friend that was shot and killed, responding to, you know, rapes, robberies, seeing an a 80 year old woman raped and beaten and brutalized. All that's in your head. And neurologists have shown us that the the brain does not know the difference between thinking about something or actually Excellent. going through it. Right. Your body still go through inside. That stress is erosive and corrosive, and it's actually you're living through the trauma over and over and over again. And that's why people need to understand, if, they were, if, you, if you were a victim of a robbery, every time you think about that robbery, you're reliving that trauma internally. And a lot of these children, by the time they get in the classroom, as you, as you stated, right. you, you work with these children and you see that anger. When these children get in the yeah. classroom, they're broken in two. And, and they have we, we no see, outlet. When, when no, you say, no outlet. <laughs> when you say meditation, like Namyo Renkei-kyo, I mean, what, what's, you know, can you no. explain what <laughs> meditation is? I, mean, I, I, like, I, I like that you said that because, you know, European societies, when colonialization took place, we went into societies that had deep history of hundreds of years of healing methods that we looked at and in, in, in turned into paganism. And now people are going back to those methods. You know, so meditation is, if, and I encourage all of your listeners just to go on and read the science on meditation. It's mind-boggling. Meditation is just really... Uh, living in the present. Think about it for a moment. We spend 50% of our time thinking about the things that happened in the past that we could do nothing nothing about. The other 50% we spend worrying about the future of what is about to happen. When do we live in the present? And meditation gives you the opportunity of living in the present, starting to shut down all that noise that you are constantly in, uh, living in fear of 
fear of what happened, fear of what's going to happen. No, have a moment in the presence where you're, 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 you're taking the fright and flight which we should never be in all the time. We are revved up all so the is, time. So is the basic science behind meditation emptying your head for a few minutes, kind of? And, and it's not. It's, it's not. Well, it's more than that, right? I mean, <laughs> they're like Buddhist monks in I don't know Cambodia or something. They've done they've done tests on their brain waves. There you go. And they have more activity in their frontal cortex, which is which sort of scientifically shows that they're ha- literally happier than most of right, us. Right, right, right. Um, so it has a lot of different benefits. Um, let me, and let me, tell you, let me tell you a story. You well, know, what's I, the difference I, between prayer and meditation? Well, prayer is a form of meditation. Prayer is a form of meditation. You know, if you, if you, the, the, the goal of meditation, and I'm not an expert on meditation. I, right. I've been meditating for about a, a good uh, 12, 13 years now. Uh, the goal of meditation is to be present. It's to silence your mind. There's a great book. Uh, one of my uh, mentors in this subject is Dr. Uh, Dispenser. We could do a whole a podcast just on, on, on you know, this whole process. But our brains are, we, we have what's considered neuroplasticity in our brains. We could rewire and reshape our brains. And you know, you're, you're finding people who are on depression, who's de- who are who, who are depressed. Uh, meditation is helping them. People who are hooked on uh, opioids, uh, people who have pain, constant pain in their in their lives. And so we want to use that because, as I was stating, by the time these children get in school, we want them to add and multiply. And they said, "Listen, I just lost a, a brother mm-hmm. that was just killed." I just saw my friend just there. Right. Who's yeah. healing me? Before you want me to do something academically, help heal me emotionally. And we don't do that. We we've separated the the mind and and spirit from education. These mm. children will never educate be educated if we do not identify and acknowledge their pain. Now, if you come from Park Slope where mommy and daddy kiss you in the morning, drop you up at Whole Foods, make sure you had a, a nourishing meal, and when you walk across the street, the uh, the traffic agent is saying, hello, little Johnny, I hope you get your A in school. You know, that's a different atmosphere. But if you're leaving NYCHA, Mm-hmm. And by the time you get to the elevator, you got to cross over people selling drugs in the, in the hallway. The, the, the elevator is stench with urine. You walk in the store, they follow you around the store and say, what yeah. are you stealing again? You know, you get to the school crossing guard and the school crossing guard is, you know, get your ass across the street. You know, by the time you get there, you're you, broken. You, yeah. <laughs> I, I used to work at the Police Athletic League and I used to go to these centers in Brownsville, East New York and Bed-Stuy. And you, it was remarkable, like... Every what what you described exactly what you see. Every single situation is a challenge for the child. They go into the bodega, and you know there's like a drunk guy hanging out, and so they have to they have to negotiate that, like just to buy <laughs> potato chips. Every go. single <laughs> small thing that you take for granted is some sort of existential situation, you know, and it's well it's exhausting. And by the time they get to their class i mean yeah they're like, wired yeah they're wired well what, what is this abstract stuff that you're telling me i'm living in the real world i like i i'm so you know jacked up because like everything is a threat for me and and so now yeah i don't i'm not engaging in this right right so if you start the school day having them meditate having them let's get present let's get prepared for the day of learning right you know turning down all the noise not only are you giving them a tool to be academically smart, 
but you're giving them a tool to be emotionally intelligent. They can still with the stress in the street better. They right. can start believing that, okay, every time someone steps to me, I don't have to all of a sudden put up my hand. You start to think different. Because we're wired as a city. Try cross-cutting somebody off on the road. Yeah. <laughs> we're in this constant state. Because our human body is made for flight and fright. This was when we were being chased by lion, tigers, and bears. We replaced the lion, tigers, and bears with, I didn't get that seat on the train. Why is this train running late? Why did you cut me off? Why are you taking so long at the token booth? We're in this constant state of being wired. All the time. The human body's not made for that. That's why we get all of these cancers, all of these diseases, all of this sickness, because we're in a constant state of being revved up all the time. You know what? I'm, I'm really thankful you came in because I came here all revved up and just you talking <laughs> about it is making me think. You about don't seem very revved different up. Choices. <laughs> no, it's, it's about making choices it, and it really understanding. Is. You it know, really is. Let me tell you something. The most important thing, you have no freedom over what someone does. You have freedom over how you respond. Right. Once you get that freedom and say to yourself, I'm free over how I respond. Call me what you want, do what you want, you know, and I practice it every day. When people do things, I look for people to do things that's going to annoy me or offend me because I say to myself, be who you say you are. And if if something as slight as someone cutting you off on the road is going to get you revved up, then you're not who you say you are. You know, acknowledge what happened and then fall back into the state. That's not all that serious. Half of what we get revved up about, when you do a real analysis of it. It's not, not a big thing. <laughs> All right, so we how do you? No, I know. I'm sure. Like <laughs> Psychoanalyzed, Steve. <Yeah. laughs> Eric Adams. <laughs> uh, so when's your book tour? <laughs> Actually, I am doing a book. Are you? Yeah, I'm doing a book about All right, my, All right. my 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 recovery of diabetes. You know, everyone knows. Three years ago, uh, I woke up when I came when I returned from Dubai. I had a real pain in my stomach. I thought sure it was colon cancer. It turned out that it was an ulcer. And when I got to the doctor, the doctor, you know, did a colonoscopy and endoscopy. And he told me that it was an ulcer. But he said, you know, your real crisis was your, is your diabetes. I didn't know it. My mother was diabetic, diabetic mm-hmm. also. And I lost my sight in my left eye. And I was losing in my right. They told me that, you know, you're going to be blind in a year. And I went and did something very scientific. I went to the computer and I Googled reversing diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> and those, those were the doctors that I spoke with over the weekend last week in Washington, oh, wow. a group called PCRM. And they gave me an award because of what I'm doing around this healthcare stuff. But three weeks after changing my diet, wow. my vision cleared up. Three months, I had permanent nerve damage. They told me in my hands and feet that it was going to lead to amputation. And all of that cleared up. The ulcer went away. My cholesterol normalized. What did what like? What was your diet before you did all this? Was it egregious or yeah. was it like just normal like That's Western a good question. diet? That's a good question. And I want to dispel the myth that people say cops like donuts. We do <laughs> all types. <laughs> you know, uh, it was filled with processed food. Right. On the go all the time. You know, elected official. You're eating everywhere yep. and anywhere. And it was just so much processed food. And it was really not knowing 
what caused diabetes, which was very interesting because I went to five of the best doctors in the city, and they all told me the same thing. They said, Eric, there's nothing you can do. It's hereditary, too much carbohydrate, too much sugar. Really? They, they, were, all, they were all just so wrong. And when I found out what caused diabetes and understood that my nutritionist who I was visiting that the doctor told me to go see, she was giving me the foods that was aggravating my diabetes. This is interesting. Wait, the nutritionist was telling you to eat stuff that was... That was causing... That was feeding the diabetes because they don't know. Only one... Only one-fourth of medical schools in this country, one-fourth, will teach one class on nutrition. Wow. They We're taught in our medical schools how to uh, uh, write prescriptions, how to get drugs. The pharmaceutical uh, companies control our medical schools. So we don't teach healing, reversal. We teach how to live with drugs. And a lot of other cultures use food as medicine. I mean, our Western Western medicine comes from like battles, battle medicine like from the civil war and from you know like right. how do you cut off this leg <laughs> right that's what we that's what we're really good right. at we're not good at how do you not get sick and, and think about this think about hippocrates let food be that medicine right this guy was hanging out with with um socrates <laughs> if they, if they knew back then every hospital have the quotes of Hi- hippocrates well they didn't have flones back then that's why he had to say that <laughs> what's you know? flones <laughs> or any drugs i'm just saying yeah, oh. right but you yeah know, like that's it, what food that. is yeah that long ago we quote him do no harm we put his name up all hey how about listening to what he said and right. and, and that that goes back so mother was taking drugs to lower her sugar, she was eating foods to increase yeah. her sugar. And when, when the drug to lower her sugar was too much, they gave her more drugs to increase her sugar. And, and when she joined me, mom is 80 years old, you know, when she joined me on this journey, in two months, she was taken off her insulin. Really? Wow. Think about that. <laughs> is she also? You're vegan, right? Yeah, I'm a, I, I call it whole plant, food, plant based, because yeah. you can eat Oreo cookies and call yourself vegan. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. No, whole food, plant based, great meal. It's not that boring food that people think is boring. Well, they get the Impossible Burger now and other very technologically so many, advanced. Yeah, so much good food. Yeah. I cook ninety percent of what I eat. I cook myself because I don't trust restaurants. Everybody, right. every chef. You know, you tell them, listen, don't put any oil in my food. Yeah, yeah. Don't put any salt in. Then you, they, when it comes back, you could taste the oil. They say, oh, I yeah. just put a little. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, but, you know, but it, it feeds into my narrative. That's the discipline we need to run this city. I like that. <laughs> the <laughs> discipline see, of a vegan. <laughs> the <laughs> Eric Adams story. <laughs> it's the, it, that's the discipline we need, you know, of seeing where we can go. I saw myself being healed. I saw the city being saved. I see that we can educate our children and we could have a NYCHA that's functional and we could have a transportation system. So how would you see, just real quick, a NYCHA that could be functioning? A, a, a Comstock stat model. You know, let me, let me tell you what's very interesting about this city. Dysfunctionality is profitable for people. Mm-hmm. And when you look at NYCHA, for example, we need a Comstat real-time governance just the water towers. But when we started to look into the crisis around the water towers, 
People were installing the water towers. They were low bidding the contracts. Somebody told me, I think uh, Lori Cumble told me yesterday that by law they have to take the lowest bid. See, and that's the problem. Now check out what they're doing. They low bid the contracts. Right. Then they do a series of emergency repairs. And the person on the ground of the Nitro development, he has a pocket of money that he can do for emergency repairs. And then by the time you do an accumulation of those emergency repairs, you realize it was far more than, right. <laughs> than the contract. Yeah, I, 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 that doesn't sound right to me. Right. You, to take the lowest bid because you have to also see the work and, and there's so many variables Without to just go, Without oh, the cheapest guy. You know? So now right. how do we make it functional? You put, in, you put in a real-time governance system that will use an alg algorithm to cross-analyze all your water towers, who installed them, what was the cost of install, installation, how many times were there emergency repairs, is there a particular super or a person in charge on the ground that's connected to the same contractor? Mm. You're going to start <laughs> <Yeah>. exposing, <laughs> is it more than what we think it is? And you will be able to say, listen, you installed the 100 water towers. Out of your 100 water towers, you had X number where there were repair problems, and you made Y number of amount of money. Now you begin to pinpoint where the money is hemorrhaging in the city. You, this is a $92 billion annual That's corporation, right. yet we can't do anything right because we're hemorrhaging too much money. You know what happens when we hemorrhage that much money? Then we go back to the pockets of our taxpayers. Yeah, and what, say we what want bothers me you. is whenever you speak with uh, de Blasio, excuse, and other certain people, it's like, NYCHA just needs more money. <laughs> it's like every time I hear that, it's we don't like— need more, We don't need more money. Mm -hmm. we, what we need to do is effectively use the money we have, and we're not. We, Department of Education, $27 billion, yet every year we could almost predict the schools that we're going to have a failing system. You know, uh, uh, the numbers of our young people are not being educated. 60% of, uh, of Hispanics, 54% uh, of uh, African Americans are not reading and writing at the right level. It, it speaks for itself. Yeah, but didn't de Blasio try the renewal program, which brought in mental health workers and social workers and all these things, and it wound up being a flop? It was seven hundred over seven hundred million dollars yeah. uh, that we that that we use in, in the numbers of fifty four and sixty. Those are charter school numbers. The the public school numbers are dismal in comparison to that. As people look at the charter school numbers of success of the standardized standardized tests, and they pat themselves on the back. That's we are judging from the from the from the floor. <laughs> you know, don't use mm. the floor as the ceiling and call that the standard. So, what was wrong with the renewal program? Why didn't it work? It seemed to do everything you said. It confronted mental health and diet and, and, and these. It, 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 it's saying you're doing something. Go where the science is. Let's look at Bedford Academy. I don't know if you're familiar with Bedford I, I Academy. Am. I worked for our Time Press. Five okay, years. George, George Leonard was the creator of Bedford Academy. Now you have Principal Muhammad there who followed him. Same success. The beauty is Muhammad grew on George Leonard's original system. See, life is about systems. You build the right system, it doesn't matter who's the principal. It doesn't matter who's the assistant principal. The system is right, you duplicate the system. Why do we, on, why do we only have one Bedford Academy? Their numbers are amazing. 98% graduation rate, 97% yeah. college entry rate. They don't cream. They take the students as, as they come. They don't uh, uh, dismiss them. They stay inside the school system. They have a different thought process 
on how they educate the child. So why haven't we scaled up that? You know why? It's not profitable. Uh, go look and see where the money went in a new renewal school program. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did it go to like tech and like buying? Same, same, right. same, same institutions. And UFT that eat of. O- that eat off of the dysfunctionality of education. Right. Why do we use the same models that gives us the same results and expect for something different? Somewhere I read. The definition of insanity. <laughs> <laughs> so, just I, I just want to change. And that defines Steve and I's <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I suppose you guys are really going at it. I feel like I don't know. You know, I just wanted it just popped in my head. Yeah. Um, Donald Trump accused uh, the congressman of, of Baltimore of take care of Baltimore, right? And everybody's a racist and this and. You know, I, I don't want it because it's, you know, it's hard to talk about Donald Trump because everybody's so polarized. You know, right. yeah. But I, I think there is an argument that cities like Baltimore has been failed by their leadership. And, and you know, and you're so right, because you can't have an intelligent conversation with the name Donald Trump. Because now all of a sudden you can no longer have a conversation. You have right. families that can't have. Thanksgiving dinners anymore. Yeah, Yeah, my family. And and I I don't want to get in that. Right. Because NYCHA was failing when Clinton was president. Bush was president. Mm -hmm. Obama was president. And for that matter, immigration too. The last immigration reform was Reagan. Right. It's gone through Democrats or Republicans. Right. So, So Donald Trump is a fool. (laughs) <laughs> and if you, you know, get wrapped up in the fool's behavior, you're going to be distracted. He's playing with us. He sends out a tweet. He must laugh and say, I'm going to send this out and watch me have everyone respond. No one is having more fun right now than Donald Trump. He knows how to play the media oh, like playing, a violin. He's playing the country. He's playing the country. And while we are worried about his tweets, he's making billions for his people. You know, we're so upset about this is what he said. He's he is by the time he leaves the White House, he's going to have made so many multi-billionaires. And all we're going to say is, you know, what was his tweet? I could care less about Donald Trump's tweet. You know, I'm more concerned about how do we continue to make sure families survive. By 2050, one report came out by 2050, uh, African-Americans are going to have a zero net worth. What? 2050. That's powerful. That is powerful. 40% of New Yorkers, according to the United Way's report, which is an amazing report I, I encourage everyone to read, 40% of New Yorkers have a sufficiency deficit, meaning they don't have enough to pay, to pay their basic bills. 40%. That's something that we need to be focusing on. How do, what do we do to re-energize the middle class. We have destroyed the middle class that's in right, this that country. That's why the third-party transfer system is so painful. Exactly, exactly. It. And that, that's the TPT program that you're talking about. We really need to commend you uh, for being dogmatic mm-hmm. on that program. This is a program where I'm a, I believe that the federal government, the state government, and the city government must do a forensic analysis of the TPT program, our foreclosures, uh, the defraud. People aren't talking about foreclosures enough. 
You know, they right. talked deep, like they had a, a meeting on deed fraud. Mm-hmm. And, and now that I've done TPT and it's kind of done, I've been thinking, uh, somebody's been talking to me a lot about foreclosures. Oh, it's unbelievable. And, yeah. you know, one thing during the Obama administration, I didn't realize it. He bailed out the banks and he created a program called HEMP or something, H-E-M. But it's a non-binding government program where you can go in and get help, but banks aren't bound by it. Mm, so mm. they've been giving a lot of money to nonprofits to help you get out of foreclosures, mm. and, and then they put them in foreclose. this program, and they still foreclose. Right, right, right. And and when you look at the, what TPT is doing, and they have done, is taking away the home. They, we, we have witnessed cases where people lost Homes well over a million dollars because they were in thousand, three, four thousand dollars in arrear of a water bill. It's unimaginable it's what horrible. the city. When when your is mom doing. bought the house, was it a redline district? Yes, you know? South Jamaica Queens, right, right. So there, there was redlining all through. Oh, yes, without a, a lot doubt. of these houses were redlined in when they got without them, without a doubt. And so we need to continue to fight to deal with it, deal with this whole issue of taking away homes from black and brown residents. We had, we, there was not one TPT house removal on Staten Island. Yeah. Not one. When you do a map over where houses were removed, you see there are, there are the same areas where you see a high level of gentrification. I don't have stories on right. 35. Right, right. I forgot. It? You're not the choir. You wrote the song. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it was amazing. And it was amazing that nobody and the media, with all due respect, a lot of the media just silent. They, and I, I felt like I was screaming into the wind. And now everybody's kind of right. on it. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy. But like I say, the, the happiest thing that makes me is if you can save people. Their homes right, no, so true. So yeah, true. last Christmas at the Christmas party, all these people came, like people whose houses has been taken away, to go to your Christmas party, wow, Steve. Wow, yeah. that's a great feeling. No, it was you, pretty wild. You really wild. should be commended for your home. Your home is everything. You yeah. know, it's not four walls. It's the precursor to going to sleep to experience the American dream. And when someone takes it away, they created a permanent nightmare. You never live it down. If you lose your home, 30 yeah. years inside a home and all of a sudden someone takes it away from you. You're not traumatizing. It's, it's very psychologically traumatizing, too, because you think, what did I do wrong with my bills? Right. And right. I put, right. You know, it's not only taking the property, but it's all the. It is. You go from a, ho- right. a home with, to a homeless. Shelter. With no yeah. due process. Right. <laughs> so it's not even like you're in a foreclosure. We already right. know. I know the bills are coming. My right. bills are coming. They're just like, oh, what's you know, this letter? Is that something? <laughs> I own your home. <laughs> It's, cr- it's nuts. It is. It really is. It really is. And that is why we have not only must government be efficient, they must be compassionate. It goes back to your idea that, you know, people are profiting off of the inefficiency they, of government. They really are. I mean, the, these nonprofits who, oh, yeah, well, we're just getting these properties now. Like, we, we first, we were helping people by, um, by managing, you know, multifamily portfolios that would have gone into, you know, foreclosure and people would have been kicked out to, we're just going to take. Anything like three and that, four yeah, families, yeah, that owe ten thousand dollars. <laughs> you know, it's it's it's, it's, a, it's horrific, and we're not making people whole. We're not saying we're going to take the property and pay them. And yeah. Right, we're gonna look at the equity 
that's in the property. Okay, you owe three thousand, but the property's worth worth one point six. We're gonna take out three thousand and we're gonna give you go take out our administrative costs, then we'll give you the mail. No. Right. They all your equity. It it almost is mind boggling. It really you, is. When I first saw this story, I remember it was in Mrs. Saunders. I'm sitting there with Paul, the son, he's a smart guy, went to college mm-hmm. and he's scratching his head <laughs> and, and the and it was the if you ever saw the brownstone, it's pristine. When I went there, there was people working on it and carving it in there. And Paul's a smart guy, and right. he's like, I don't, you know, he's showing me the. And I'm like, you guys, you have to have it wrong. I was called in the middle of the day. This is how I first got the story. Right, right. And, and I sat there with him for like two hours. He's going, here's the receipt. Here's what the, you know. And he showed me all the receipts. And after like an hour or two, I'm, I'm I called Rob. I called. I'm like, right, right. Though Rob already knew about it, mm-hmm. but but it it was mind boggling. I thought I missed something. Right, right, you know? right. And, and, and when you first brought it to my attention, mm-hmm. I said the same thing. I said, "This can't be right." You yeah. know, it, it can't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was so. It can't be legal or yeah. And actually, it's not legal. Right. No. Well, I meant like it can't be people. Government can't be doing this. Right. This is insane. Right. Right. Like, and, it, and and at one of the hearings, they actually talked about. That they look for these these gentrified areas, you, yeah, know, yeah. you know, it it and never told people that you know you have an opportunity to go and take out a refinance. Yeah, just go know. to a bank, right? Say hey, you know. Although, well, a lot that that's the other thing though. A lot of people can't. You know, you can be house rich and cash poor. Right. Like if you don't have a, a W two, mm-hmm. if you don't have income coming in, if you're elderly and you on a fixed income, it's really hard. But it, the least thing that you could do is sell your house. Right, without a doubt. Yeah, without a, right. and move well somewhere said. else, you well know? Said. So this is, it's just. All right, so let's do our yeah. lightning round. I really appreciate <laughs> it. Our lightning round is anything that's on our mind. We each get to say one thing. It could be anything. Um, Tom, you want to go first? or? or uh, I just wanted to ask about, I mean, I, I was looking at a lot of uh, educational initiatives that you're doing. Um, Code Brooklyn, um, a mentoring program with Eagle Academy. Um, could you just talk about that a little bit about you know your efforts um, as borough president to uh, education? Yeah. Education is the you know the key. We have to we have to stop doing what we are used to doing and start doing what the science says. That's that is so important. Mm. And <clears throat> I'll push to look at a zero to three model. Science says the first 90 days, as I indicated, first 90 days, that's when the child gets the, the greatest le- level of brain neuron growth. Yes. It is- First 90 days of life? Yeah, yeah first it's funny. Days. My mom, first, yeah. First 90 days, your brain grows 80%. The first 90 days. I didn't know that. Yeah, 80% of the neuron growth is done in the first uh, 90 days. So- we start, our first introduction to children start in pre-K or 3K, when they're three year, years old or four years old. It's too late. Yep. <laughs> my, my mom is an educator, and she's you know, done a lot of different things, occupational therapist. And that's exactly what she said. She said, three years old, it's too late. It's too late. You got to start, peop- start kids, train parents. You got to start talking to your Mom's kids. Right. You right. got to start interacting with them. If you, just, if you leave them there and let them sit and watch the TV, they're done. Which is happening? Which is happening in the overwhelming number of communities of color? There is no scientific reason we start school when the child is five years old. There is no scientific reason. 
There's no scientific reason we have an agrarian calendar where our children are off two months during the year. That was for the days when we were picking corn on a farm somewhere. We have to stop doing things just because they're habits and start doing things because it's the right science to do them. And that is what we're trying to do in Brooklyn around meditation, healthy food, uh, early childhood mind development, not child care, but child mind development. How do you develop in, 90, in the first 90 days? What do you do? You, you interact with them. Like anytime you, well anytime you like interact with a baby, its brain lights up. If you talk to it, if you if you get, read it a lullaby, you know, sing a lullaby, if you if you if you put your hands around it and yep. move and say, "Hey, how you doing?" That's right. Its brain activates. And that's what the, that's what I, what I'm saying about the science. <clears throat> and and you and you're right. The science shows you simple things you can do. And what we want to do in Brooklyn through a theme of BK Basics, we're going to start empowering parents to say, "Here's how to be." a parent to your child in the first 90 days so your child is ready. Something simple as pouring water in a cup, mm-hmm. talking directly to your child, you know, reading to your child, introducing him to things, holding up a phone and say, this is a phone. Uh, you know, doing these things. The things that he learned in those first 90 days with that neuron growth is far exceeds. He learns more in those 90 days than he would do in his entire life. Hmm. But yeah. our system of education for children in well-financed communities, well-educated, developed households, they understand that, and their children start out school with that information. But when you go to communities that's economically challenged, not only with funds and resources, but information. Because if the average parents parent knew that talking to your child is significant, doing things, letting them play with a ball. We have a whole package that we're giving to parents. If we gave that information to parents, more will participate in the development of their child's brain. And what's the name of this program? Or? BK Basics. BK. And, I mean, also you see, you know, parents, they don't have child care, so they, they put the TV on and they go do, do what they need to do. And, right. you know, and it's, you know, there's a logistical thing they know that's an opportunity cost, but it's like, you know, so what are the resources that we can provide to people who, you know, like, don't ha- can't afford daycare, can't afford after school, that sort of thing. I mean, those are so true. We're, we're going to roll out an announcement that we're looking at now that is going to be a game changer in education. Uh, uh, but the, the as you stated, the most imp- child care is crucial. The number of households that that are headed by single parents household, and even even in households where you have two parents in the household. The fact that they don't have child care impacts directly on their income. We must have child care. It should be affordable and and or free. And when I say free, for those who can't afford, because without child care, you're really limiting uh, the amount of income that could come to into a family. And it directly, m- the majority of people who are impacted are are women. You know, they normally the individuals who stay home with the with their loved ones. If you don't have childcare, and we are really holding back, um, when we talk about equal rights, we should talk about equal equal rights as access to childcare, and that will free up a lot of mothers to be able to go and provide for their families and to have a career. Mm-hmm. Okay, Steve, do you have a? Well, let's see. Uh, <laughs> the, the, I, nets? I, I, well, the Nets. How are the Nets doing? I saw the Quentin Tarantino movie. I don't know if you saw it. <laughs> Which one is that? It's uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. 
No, was it good? Yeah, I really liked it. You know what? I, I really, first of all, I think uh, Di- DiCaprio is a great actor. Yeah, you he's, know, he is. Brad Pitt's good. He's good, but DiCaprio has range. He just has a range. He can do a lot of different things. Yeah, yeah. And I really like the ending. You know, somebody told me that, uh, how do you say his name? Tarantino? Did I say it right? Sure. That, that his main theme is always revenge. You know, it's like whether it was Django Unchained or Glorious Bastards, it's always revenge at the end. They get revenge. But this one is the Charles Manson family. And the ending was was, was kind of a cool ending, you know, I have to admit. Don't be a spoiler. Yeah, I won't. It was long, though. Did you go to movies? Uh, Every once in a while, you know. You read more? uh, Yes. I am an audio book guy. I love Mm. a good audio book. What's the latest thing you've been hearing? Uh, there's a book called, it's not short stories, uh, uh, the last, the last, the last lecture. It's a really good book. It's it's five uh, professors that gives they they were given in a uh, they were given direction that if you were to uh, die, what would be your last lecture? It was something in that I think area? I heard yeah, of that. yeah, I'm just I'm, I'm listening to it now. I'm listening to the first lecture, and it's really good. It's, it, there's some serious thinking moments as you reflect on it, but it's a good book uh, to uh, to read. But the big story is is the Nets, man. <laughs> they, you know what? I love oh, the Nets. Well, you know, the thing is, though, you know, will will uh, what come back from the injury? I forgot right, his name. Right, right, right. You know, they got Kyrie Irving, who, I, by the way, here is a vegan. Yes, he is. Yeah. He is. He is. Yes. So, and and he'll be he'll be pretty good. But uh, whether they got uh, I can't Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant. You know whether he comes back. But I do like the Nets. And by the way, before I don't know if you know this, but when I was at Courier Life, I was the only reporter that pushed the Nets. And everybody, I got <laughs> to the beat detriment up. of your career. <laughs> no, I got beat up by everybody. But I and, and everybody said why, and I was like, well, you know, I'm from Chicago and I love basketball. Right. And it, you know, there was no other reason than I thought I want to see a basketball team. Well, you know, and and that's so important because I think oftentimes we focus our attention on the wrong letter. And when you do that, you pronounce the term incorrectly, you know, the hyphen goes on the letter for a reason, so you can pronounce it correctly. We we do that to our lives as well. We focus our attention on the naysayers and don't realize all the yaysayers. You weren't beat up. They were just a boisterous, loud group of people who were naysayers. More people were yaysayers because they're in that stadium every day cheering on the team. It's brought a lot of money to the, to the you know, to it, the borough, yeah. too. We're all, in the, we're all benefiting from the gravitational pull of the Nets. People are coming in, they're shopping in the shops, they're eating, uh, they're spending time, they're discovering Brooklyn, and so you're right. And if they ever if they ever uh, win the NBA title, they're going to have to, like, game they're going to have to close Flatbush the Avenue. bridges. Yeah, yeah They're, they're going to have just shut off Brooklyn for a couple days. No, game changes, game changes. And I think the Islanders have gotten, like, five you, more fans. You know, so. and, and you don't have to address it if you want. I've also done a story about Woodland, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering if, you know. Racist, I, racism. That's racism. You know, what's happening to Woodlands is just unbelievable. Uh, Here you have an establishment on the corner of 6th Avenue in Flatbush, a predominantly African-American and Hispanic crowd of professionals. You will find professors in there. You will find police officers in there. You will find politicians, just about every Brooklyn politician. Serena Williams was there. Right, right. It is a well-managed place. And when I first, when this first came on my radar, I, ha- I held a meeting with the Department of Environmental Protection, with the police department, 
and I came in. I said, listen, if these guys are having crimes coming from their place or their noise is too loud based on the, uh, the decibels, and- decibels, if that's to happen, let's close them down. We had a meeting with the community. The police uh, uh, inspector came up and said he's not having any crimes come from the place. DEP said we tested the noise. The noise level's not high. Now, you looked up and down Flatbush Avenue from Manhattan Bridge all the way up to Grand Army, Army Plaza. How many establishments, establishments do you have that black and Hispanics frequent? Even on Sunday, the Sunday brunch, one of the most profitable, the people stand online in an orderly fashion. You have people in that area who probably would just got there in a week start talking about they have a line out front. Are you kidding me? That is how people judge the success of restaurants, mm-hmm. that there's a line. Hey, I had to wait on a line. I met some great people on the line. You know Not for saying? nothing. That was another story I broke on that one. Yeah, No, it, it, it's really unfair what's happening in Woodland. And the... Even the investigator from the state liquor authority, when she, you know, the, taking it personal, the lawyer, just how it was personalized. That that's a story that really needs to come out of the destruction of a legitimate business in this city. Our nightlife produces billions of dollars for this city, food and and entertainment, and and people come out to socialize. To destroy a woodlands is really a a shame. And like what what Bertha says, they'll go to they'll give Narcan, they'll go to Williamsburg. Right. We're really loud places, mm-hmm. and right. they'll go. We're know you're dealing drugs, but in case somebody <laughs> right. ODs, here's what you give them. You know, and it, it's no, it is it's, it's it's a double standard, and the the most progressive people in this city um, can be so mean sometimes, and and believe. That if you either, if you don't do it my way, it has to be the wrong way. I, mm. I I enjoy my time at Woodland. I will keep keep frequent there, like I do all of the businesses in Brooklyn. Uh, they say, well, you know what, you're not critical of them. I held the meeting, and everyone that was present heard from an independent voice from the DEP and from the police department. No crimes were coming from there. And the noise wasn't high, and so one gentleman who was at the meeting said, "Yeah, was well, someone urinated in front of my uh, front of my house?" Okay, <laughs> so you went and you tested the urine and saw <laughs> it came, came from Woodland. Yeah. <laughs> it's, wow. it's, uh, you know, I, have you ever been to Rustic? I've yes. been to Woodland and Rustic, and uh, they kind of Rustic's a little smaller, but right. that's in a community of color. It's across from yep. I think Lafayette Gardens, but very well run. Yep. Kind of an upscale draws a. A, you know, a crowd of How did you people of color. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, you know, I, I managed to get to all kinds of different places. But ru- it reminds me of Rustic. Right. Kind no, of, no, really nice place. Really nice place. Yeah. You know, really enjoyed you guys. Yeah. Thank you. Thank this you, was Mr. really Burrow fun. President. <laughs> Great. Keep on doing good things. Keep breaking those stories, man. You oh, know thank that? you very much. All right. <laughs> you can reach Kings County Politics at Kings County Polls on Twitter. To What's your Twitter account? Or? If anybody wants to reach you or the borough president's I, I, office. All I do is tweet. I don't know what I type in to tweet. <laughs> oh, you don't know your handle or no, whatever? No. Well, that is the qualifications BP, for higher BP office. BP Eric Adams. BP Eric Adams. Lucky thing we had Jonah here. Yeah. <laughs> and Stephen Witt at Stephen underscore Witt, W-I-T-T. And we're at correct New- Uncorrect New York. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Thank you.